The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So Paul has been dealing with some pretty challenging issues for the Corinthians. In chapter 5, he of course begins with this situation of um, immorality, and he says an immorality of such a kind that is not even mentioned among Gentiles. And you remember the Corinthians were just, were proud about how uh, how loving, how kind, how tolerant they were. And Paul says instead of them being proud, they should, be, they should be mourning, they should be heartbroken over the sin that's in the assembly there. And that mourning should have led them to do something about this man, which was to put him out. Paul goes uh, then from there, chapter 5 into chapter 6, and he begins dealing with the... Um, the shamefulness, the disgrace of Christians taking other Christians to court. And of course, that, that, you know, you go, from, you go from that gross form of immorality in 1 Corinthians 5, and then you go from uh, 6, 1, 1 uh, through 11, and you start thinking to yourself, you know, I mean, well, obviously, the, what was going on in chapter 5 was way, way worse than what was going on in chapter 6. Paul actually saw the idea of Christians taking each other to court as uh, not only a defeat for them already, but actually a very denial of who they were and a denial of of what God in Christ had planned for them to be. And so it was no small thing. It was a significant thing. And then Paul begins to deal with um, sexual immorality again. You kind of get the sense that this is a problem for the Corinthians. And so in 6.12, we read, uh, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So last week we looked at verses 12 through 14, and just um, by way of reminder that, 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 first of all, that expression in in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, should be in quote marks in your Bible. If you have a New American Standard, it's not. You can put them in there yourself. This is, a, 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 with, with almost certainty, uh, a Corinthian slogan. This is something that the Corinthian, this is their bumper sticker theology. And uh, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul, um, in a sense, corrects their theology by saying, but not all things are profitable. Then he he quotes their slogan again, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul says this, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so what you see is that the Corinthians had this idea that they really had this, this incredible liberty. They were so spiritual and so much a part of the age to come that everything in this age was lawful for them. 
Verse 13 begins with another Corinthian slogan. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. And of course, this, this slogan has to do with the idea, it, by the way, it's not, as I noted last week, it's not about food. The idea is, is that look, you have a body, you have bodily appetites, and one of these days, God's going to do away with all of it, so what difference does it make? And just as sure as food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, then by extrapolation, sex is for the body, the body is for sex. But Paul will not allow them to continue in their false theology because that's, that's what this is, by the way. This is what Paul's attacking. Paul's not going to the heart of their ethical behavior right now. He's going to the heart of their false theology right now. And he says, yet the body is not for immorality. The body is not for porneia. God did not give you your body to be a, a playground for your own sexual desires, but your body is for the Lord. In other words, when God redeems you, he redeems all of you, and all of you belong to him. Body, soul, mind, spirit, you all, it, it all belongs to the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Think that that is a reference to the idea that, that what our Lord does for us in his redeeming work is not just for our soul, but is ultimately also for our body. It's really interesting. In the New Testament, you don't get a, an emphasis on the idea that salvation is the immortality of the soul. What you do get is that salvation is the redemption of the body. It's not to say that we don't have a soul and that soul will not be in the presence of the Lord, but it is to say that the ultimate view of redemption is not just to be a a disembodied spirit in the presence of God. It's actually to have a resurrected body in the likeness of our Lord Jesus that's fit for a new heaven and new earth. And so the idea that the Lord is for the body is that the Lord is the the savior of, of the totality of our being. And, um, and then Paul, verse 14, and here's, here's the reason why our bodies are important. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, but will also raise us up through his power. And so it is the redemption of our body. Romans eight twenty three. what is the consummation of our adoption as sons? It's the redemption of our bodies. That brings us to the passage for tonight, verses 15 to 17. We'll probably finish this section, Paul goes for further correction here. Now, in this, in this section, some of the details are a little challenging. They're a little difficult. But even though some of the details may be uh, less than, than clear, Paul's overall meaning here is clear, right? Uh, sometimes we have to remember that, that we may not actually be able to pinpoint the exact meaning of certain details, but that doesn't mean you can't get the, the bigger picture, right? So Paul begins and he says, do you not know? Have you ever heard that before? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, this, this particular expression is somewhat unique in Paul. All right. Um, so first of all, the do you not know? Uh, uh, one commentator, uh, Rosner and Siampa, he says, this is the fourth time in 15 verses. And the question at this point, do you not know, is not a polite inquiry, but it is a barely disguised rebuke. In other words, once again, this is stuff that you should know. Shame on you for not only not knowing it, but for not complying or living it. Now, the interesting observation is that Paul's going to get to uh, the use of the body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12, the, uh, the church as the body of Christ, and the and believers as individual members of that body. But here, it is not exactly the same metaphor. In fact, the idea is that the bodies here it almost certainly need to be the, uh, the individual bodies of believers. And what Paul says is, is that the, the body of a believer is a member of Christ. 
Now, this just takes a, a, a moment to just reflect a little bit on. So when, when a person is, is joined to Christ, there's certainly this sense of spiritual union, correct? But just as sure as the believer's soul, if you will, is a member of Christ in spiritual union, Paul is saying something more than that. And that is, it's the totality of your person, including your physical body, which is a member of Christ. So, like I said, our our union with Christ for sure is a spiritual union, but that does not mean that our body is excluded. In fact, it is this very sense that our bodies belong to Christ and our bodies are members of him, that is, we belong to him, that is the, the, the very basis of our future resurrection, And so because Jesus was physically raised up from the dead and now I'm in union with him, not just in terms of my spirit, but in terms of the totality of my being, that that guarantees that one of these days I will be raised, which of course ends up being Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, which is the guarantee of our future resurrection. So Paul wants the, the Corinthians, see the Corinthians... The Corinthians had um, this idea that that there was this there was this dichotomy between the spiritual and the physical, and because they were so spiritual, the physical didn't matter. And Paul is trying to Paul is trying to absolutely destroy that idea by reminding them that their bodies themselves are members of Christ. And then he says, therefore, do you take up the members of Christ to make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Now, the the imagery here that Paul is using is, is supposed to be shocking, and so, so there's a few things that, that, that we need to understand. First is, is that from Paul's perspective, the idea of sexuality and sexual intimacy involves the idea of bodily union. All right? That's, that's clear. The reason why that is so profoundly wrong not sex within marriage, but sex which is forbidden by God outside of marriage. The reason why it is so wrong to be joined, in this case, to a prostitute, is because our bodies belong to Christ, and sexual union, by its very uh, essence, is a bodily union with somebody else. And so Paul says, so do you really think that we should have the freedom to take the members of Christ's body and make them into the members of a prostitute. Now, New American Standard says, shall I take away the members? That, that word, take away, is far, far more vivid then we may realize. Handbook on the Greek New Testament says this. It says, it's not simply to take, but to take away as if the limbs are being violently torn from the body. Loosely, you could translate it dismembered. And so the picture is, is should we should we dismember Christ by taking one of his members and violently dismember that member from Christ and then turn around and join that member to a prostitute? The imagery is supposed to be shocking. You know, the biblical writers were not above shocking us. 
right? Sometimes we just read the Bible in too, uh, in, in too much of a domesticated way, too much of a sanitized way. There are times where the Bible says things that are supposed to be absolutely shocking in order to get our attention. And this is one of them. And so Paul asks the question, so do we dismember the member of Christ to make them a member of a prostitute? And then he turns around with his emphatic negation, may it never be. Paul uses this expression a number of times. He's the only writer in the New Testament to use this particular expression. And it, 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 it expresses emotion and a sense of emphasis. So the idea is, do we think this is okay? Absolutely not. I think the the old King James, you know, they used to do this phrase, God forbid. May it never be. Absolutely not. And Paul then goes on and, and further explains why this just should be Uh, just anathema to us, or do you not know, notice this again, do you not know that the one joining himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for he says the two shall become one flesh. So there's a repetition of the formula, do you not know, and and it's it's almost as if what Paul's getting at is, is that this is so obvious. This is so obvious. I shouldn't have to explain this to you. Paul then, he presents this, uh, the, the, really the unthinkable. He goes from that which is utterly shocking, dismembering the, the member, a member of Christ's body to, uh, attach it to a prostitute. And then he goes to another unthinkable idea, and that is to physically join yourself, in this case to a prostitute, is to create a physical Union. Now Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 here. This, by the way, does not imply that sexual intercourse makes a marriage. All right? There, There are some people that Read that and think that that's what Paul's saying. What Paul's getting at here, especially by his use of Genesis 2.24, is that he is emphasizing for us the reality that sexual union is reserved for marriage and therefore such unions outside of marriage is a, is a violation of the very union that God intended to exist only within marriage. When he uses the word, this, this, this uh, quotation comes from the Septuagint, he uses an incredibly strong word, that joining word, is the idea of to bind closely, to glue together, to cling to, to attach. In other words, what Paul's getting at is, he, he, it's, it's as if he's saying, you don't understand the implications of sexually joining yourself to somebody other than your wife, in this case, probably temple prostitutes. You don't understand the implications. You don't understand what you're doing. You're actually entering into a physical union with them. You're bringing Christ into that physical union. Gordon Fee says, while the union of man and wife is one flesh implies far more than merely physical union, right? Paul's concern here is strictly with the physical aspects of the union. To have sexual intercourse with a prostitute involves an illicit sexual joining of one's body to that of another, literally. It's not the sexual union itself that is incompatible with union with Christ. It is such a union with a prostitute. This constitutes bodily union with a person who is not herself a member of Christ, whose own body therefore is not destined for resurrection. Do you know what this means? Do you understand what Paul's getting at here? 
It's something that our culture desperately needs to hear, probably just as much as the Corinthians needed to hear it, and it's this. Sex is never casual. Sex is never casual. There is a joining together. I mean, by the way, you don't even need, you, you don't need the Bible to explicitly tell you this. There are, uh, there are uh, uh, chemical reactions that happen in the brain during sexual intimacy. There is a, there are emotional attachments and to create, uh, to, to treat sex casually is to defy its very intention by the creator. So there's no such thing as casual sex. Young people, get that through your head. There's no such thing as casual sex. And all we do is we utterly desensitize ourselves to the good gift that God has given. Okay. Young people, you, you, you find a Christian man or Christian woman who was promiscuous before their conversion, promiscuous before their marriage, and they will tell you It's one of the deepest regrets of their life. There is no such thing as casual sex. And by the way, sex is not relegated simply to intercourse. All sexual contact is in view. We live in a day where we have to say that. Because, because people think that, young people think that, that other forms of sex isn't sex. Paul says this, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The one who joins himself to the Lord. So here's this, uh, this wonderful picture of salvation or conversion, right? So by faith, we're actually joined to Christ, right? Um, as Paul puts it, uh, he betrothed the Corinthians to be Christ's virgin bride, right? That's the idea. The one who, the one who, who joins himself to the Lord, the one who clings to the Lord by faith, then is one spirit with him. And I would say that it's important to note, Paul's not nullifying what he said later or earlier, um, saying, well, actually what I meant was there actually one spirit, the body doesn't matter. No, the body still matters, but the idea of one spirit is, is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what the Holy Spirit does is creates a union between us and Christ that's in the spirit. That's why the very idea of sexual immorality should be abominable and repulsive to us because we're one with Christ by his spirit. That leads Paul to verse 18. You know what's interesting about verse 18 is there are no conjunctions. There are no connecting words. Paul makes his point in verse 17 and then just says this. Flee immorality. There's something about it that is, that is um, abrupt. There's something about it. By the way, um, you've got to remember that Paul didn't have access to word 
right? He didn't have, you know, bold, italicize, you know, underline, make the font bigger. Well, actually, he could make the font bigger by his writing, which we think he did in Galatians. But by and large, Paul has to emphasize things through literary devices. And one of the ways that you emphasize something with a literary device is by having no connecting little words that we call conjunctions, for instance. And so there's something about it that's, that's urgent. Flee immorality. And so here's, in a sense, this is, this is the, um, this is the logical conclusion of understanding what he's been saying about the, the nature of sexual sin and so forth. And it's just flee immorality. It's a present imperative, which means the idea is, is that this is to be something that's habitual for us. This is to be something that is continual for us. It's not just a flee immorality, uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. This is be fleeing immorality all the time. Wherever you see it coming, go the other way. Now, you you can't help in these two simple words, flee immorality, to see actually an Old Testament illusion, right? Anybody see an Old Testament illusion in these two simple terms, flee immorality? No. Mm-mm. Joseph. Joseph is, is the, in a sense, he's the Old Testament embodiment of flea immorality. And in fact, there's, uh, not to get into the weeds here, but there's, there's apocryphal writings that, that, um, that emphasize Joseph's fleeing from immorality using this exact terminology that Paul uses. And so it, it almost certainly is, is, is at least in the background to Paul's mind, flee immorality. You remember what happens with Joseph. So listen to this, Let's, listen to this, ladies. Joseph was a good looking guy, handsome, all right, really handsome. And you remember Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Brothers are awesome. And, uh, of course, he works his way up. And we'll, we'll, we'll get there in due time once we get to chapter 37. Um, the bottom line is, is that he ends up being brought into Potiphar's house. Potiphar is like um, uh, Pharaoh's, uh, you know, right-hand man. He's a high official. And um, Joseph is brought in. And Joseph is so, so effective because God is with him, which is repeated throughout these chapters. God is with him. And as God is with him, Joseph actually just succeeds, whether it's actually in prison or now in Potiphar's house. And so Potiphar puts him in charge of absolutely everything. Well, Potiphar's married to a woman who is, uh, who is called Mrs. Potiphar, of course. And let's just say that Mrs. Potiphar is not the model of virtue. She sees that Joseph is a young man and he's handsome and she starts, she starts propositioning him and he tries his best to avoid and ignore those situations and then one day she just can't stand it anymore and she grabs him and demands, you need to lay with me. And Joseph, what does he do? He flees. Now, let me just tell you that doing what God tells you to do does not always end in great blessing. It ultimately ends in great blessing, but the immediate may not be great blessing because it was this very event that gets Joseph thrown into prison. But it's very interesting. He says to Potiphar's wife, 
No. How could I commit this great evil against God and against your husband who has entrusted me with everything except you? Man of conviction. When it came right down to it, he's the very model of fleeing immorality. We should have such an understanding of what happens in immorality that we do everything we can to, first of all, guard our hearts. See, that's why, by the way, Joseph... (laughs) Joseph doesn't just set up these external barriers so that he can't commit immorality. Joseph, first and foremost, guarded his own heart so that he didn't want to commit immorality. And it was the the very condition of his heart that compelled him to flee in the moment of the fiercest temptation. Now, Paul says something peculiar here in verse 18 after he says flee immorality. And that is, he says every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, some commentators have taken this expression Every other sin a man commits is outside the body. I've taken that to be another Corinthian slogan, right? So in other words, italics is what the Corinthians would say. Now, there's two things about it that, um, that are appealing. Okay? One is, if that was a Corinthian slogan, it actually would fit very nicely with their dichotomy. You know, um, when you sin, it really doesn't have anything to do with the body. The other thing that it would do for us that's appealing is that it would alleviate what seems to be an obvious overstatement because we can think of other sins that are against the body. Gluttony, for instance, it would be a sin against the body. Or drunkenness would be a sin against the body. And so the meaning, if it were a slogan, would be something like this. Sin has nothing to do with the body. The body has nothing to do with sin. But as appealing as that is, I don't think that that's what Paul's saying. I think Paul himself is not citing a slogan here. I think Paul himself is actually saying every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, the reason I think this is Paul is because, first of all, um, Paul's not arguing in some sort of absolute way regarding how various sins affect our physical body. But what he is doing is he is pointing out the uniqueness of sexual sin. So, in one sense, sure, gluttony is a sin against the body. But it's not a sin against the body in the same way that sexual immorality is a sin against the body. Drunkenness is most definitely a sin against the body. But it's not a sin against the body in the same way that sexual immorality is a sin against the body. If if, if the body is for the Lord and the body belongs to the Lord, sexual immorality is a violent dismembering of one of Christ's members with a body that will be raised and taking it and joining it to a harlot. And there's something, and I know that we live in our evangelical subculture that says all sin is created equal. That's not true. It's not true. All sin is not created equal. In fact, we went over this in the previous section. For instance, there are certain sins that are against nature. For instance, homosexuality. There are other sins that are, that are sins that are peculiarly grievous 
because they're a violation of God's created intent or because of the consequences that may ensue from those sins. And so it's not true to say that speeding is just as bad as committing adultery. Would you agree? Adam? Okay. Because if you sin by breaking the speed limit, Adam will, will, will make you pay. <clears throat> so will Chris. If you're in Nevada, if you're in California, Adam will get you. Right? But it's not the same. It's not the same. And we shouldn't think that God looks at it as the same. In fact, God talks about sin that's greater sin. Right? Jesus, in fact, says to Pilate, for instance, the ones who turned me over to you are guilty of the greater sin. So don't just don't don't try to just level sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is it's it's not accidental that sexual sins lead Paul's vice lists in all of Paul's vice lists. <clears throat> Notice every sin that a man commits is outside the body. It's not abundantly clear, but what is clear is the immoral man is sinning against his own body in a way that other sins are not against his body. The reason that this should be so reprehensible to us is because of what Paul says next. Basically, uh, who you are and whose you are. This is, this is what makes sexual immorality uh, such a peculiarly grieving sin. And, and notice verse 19, or do you not know? You're kind of getting the feeling that Paul's maybe a little irritated with the Corinthians at this point, don't you think? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. So this is, this is the very reason why the idea of sexual immorality should be so reprehensible. First of all, um, in salvation, God gives us his Holy Spirit as a gift, right? And that Holy Spirit, in turn, then indwells those who trust in Christ so that our bodies are the very habitation of God's Spirit. Don't you know that your body, your physical existence, is the very habitation of the dwelling of God by His Spirit? In other words, Paul makes this point, and this is, this is, this is New Testament theology at its finest. What we see in the Old Testament is God dwelling in the temple. What we see God doing in the New Testament is indwelling the body of Christ, which is the church and indwelling the individual members of Christ's body so that they are now the temple. So if you want to get really excited about people rebuilding a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, let me just tell you something even more exciting. You are the temple. Right? Spirit of God lives inside of you. And so the Corinthians had, had assumed that because they had the Spirit, the body didn't matter. They were profoundly wrong. In fact, it's the very presence of the Spirit living inside of us that affirms the very dignity of the body. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, your soul is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Or your mind is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body. Your body. Paul's not done because he has to make two more points and one more command. 
You are not your own. None of us belong to ourselves. You are not your own. When Paul says this, Paul is reminding us that we belong in both body and soul to our Savior. You see, the the lie of the culture is that because we are these autonomous beings who are a law unto ourselves, that we belong to ourselves. And the, the reality is, is that we do not belong to ourselves. And in fact, Paul's going to even get um, go from preaching to meddling in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, guess what, husbands? Your bodies don't belong to you. They belong to your wife. And wives, your body doesn't belong to you. They belong belong to your husband. Oh boy, can't wait to get to that text. <laughs> kind of dreading that one. But the point is is that you don't belong to yourself. Here's here's a news flash for our narcissistic culture. You don't have the right to do whatever you want. You don't have the right to kill a baby inside of your womb. You don't have the right to actually turn your body into a playground for your own pleasure. You don't have the right. You you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. So, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, he's inside of you, and that you are not your own. In other words, you belong to the one who lives in you. You belong to the one who lives in you. Then Paul says you've been bought with a price. In a sense, here's the reason why you actually don't belong to yourself. Okay? I mean, there's, there's probably a, a dozen reasons why you don't belong to yourself. But here's a really good one. You've been bought with a price. Now, when, when Paul uses this language, by the way, he uses language that everybody in his culture would have completely understood. He was using language of the slave market. You've been bought with a price. In other words, that price, which was a very specific uh, notion of, of paying money to procure a slave. So is there wonderful freedom and liberty in the gospel? And the answer is absolutely. But our freedom and liberty in the gospel comes because we are now slaves of God and slaves of Christ. You have been bought with a price. The picture is, here you are, you know, you think you're all that in a bag of chips, but actually, you're in chains on the auction block. And Jesus Christ has come, and he's paid the, the, the price for you, and you now aren't your own. You have a new master because you've been bought with a price, and that price is nothing less than the cross of Christ and Christ's own blood, and so we are now his, both body and soul. Slaves. It is a blessed slavery. It is, the, the, when we become slaves of God, we are free from sin. And when we become slaves to God, we are now free from that former pattern of life. We've been set free by virtue of the fact that we are the slaves of Christ. You have been bought with a price. Therefore... Glorify God in your body. You know, we have here, right? We have the indicative. You've been bought with a price. 
and we have the imperative. Glorify God in your body. It's not you've been bought with a price. Do whatever you want. You know, we sing Charles Wesley's um, great hymn, And Can It Be? Could you imagine if Wesley would have written it something like this? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and went and watched TV. I rose and followed thee. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, you have an obligation. Glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, you have motivation to glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, you have power to glorify God in your body. When he says glorify God in your body, it should be pretty obvious to us. When I was in high school, I I took this text and memorized it and made sure I went to the gym every day. I wanted to glorify God in my body by having big biceps and nice pecs. That didn't work. It's not what he's talking about. Sure, there may be application, take care of your body and honor God by the way that you have stewardship over your body. That's absolutely true. But for this, but for this particular passage, the idea of honor God in your body, and that, that is, you live the way that God tells you to live. And you don't go joining yourself to prostitutes. You don't go joining yourself sexually to other people that are not your spouse. You honor God in your body. And there's a sense in the way in which Paul does it. This is not a present imperative. This is an aorist imperative. The idea here is urgency. You're to do it and you're to do it now. This is not something that you, that you contemplate and think whether you want to do it or not. And you think, well, it might make a nice New Year's resolution sometime. The idea is, is you do it and you do it now. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body now. So two things. We touched on this first one last week, but let me just say that this passage, 12 through 20, gives us the theology of the body. And it reminds us that, that the body has dignity, all right? We're not Greeks, we're not pagans that look at the body as bad and the soul as good. We actually see the body was created good and it now belongs to Jesus Christ by right of redemption and therefore it will be raised on the last day. Because of that, we must honor God with our bodies. As I pointed out last week, these bodies, this, this is the sphere, this is the realm of sanctification. Right? We honor God in our bodies, which means we obey his word regarding sex. It means more than that, but it most definitely means that here. God never, ever, ever designed sex to be casual or recreational and to be enjoyed anywhere other than the bonds of marriage. In fact, it is, it is sexuality that is the glue of the one flesh relationship, which is a gift from God. Therefore, we have to understand that sexual sin is unique sin because it is a body-joining, body-defiling sin. Now, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, whose blood can cleanse us from all of our sins, including sexual sin. Right? Remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, such were some of you. Some of you used to be this. There's cleansing, there's forgiveness, there's 
sanctification, there's, there is a wonderful sense of, of having our sins as cast as far as the east is from the west, but that still does not actually diminish at all the magnitude of sexual sin. Therefore, number two, the command is that we are to be fleeing from immorality, running from it, making every effort to escape it. What are our motives for this? The shocking idea of including Christ in our immorality. That's if your body is joined to Christ, and you're going to take that body and go do this and go do that, guess who you're taking with you? <laughs> you're taking Christ. And so the very shocking idea that, 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 that we are including Christ in our immorality should, should motivate us to flee immorality. Our identity of being temples, including the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and our, the very idea of, of us being slaves to God should motivate us to flee from immorality. Understanding the great price that was paid for us to belong to Christ should motivate us to flee from immorality. So, in our hyper-sexual culture, in which we are bombarded at virtually every turn with sensuality and sexual immorality... Paul's admonition to us is more relevant than ever. Flee and honor. Flee the immorality. Honor God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would take these words to heart, whether we're young or old. We pray that we take these words to heart and fight the good fight. And Father, we pray that where we've become lazy or acclimated to our exposure to sexual immorality, we pray that you'd sensitize us by the power of your spirit in such a way that we would flee afresh. Father, we pray that you'd help us to guard our own hearts, guard our own minds, Father, remind us that these bodies are to be lived for your glory. They're living sacrifices. And so we pray that you would help us tonight. We pray, Lord, especially for our young people who, who have challenges that, that many of us actually didn't particularly face. And we pray that you'd help them to be strong. Help them to be pure. Help them, Father, to glorify you in the bodies that you've given to them. And we ask this all in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.